Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Fulkenflick, and this is On Point. I've been with NPR for more than 15 years. For the first dozen, several close friends here at the network called me the newspaper guy. They were teasing me, but they weren't wrong. I worked at three papers over more than 13 years. I learned the rudiments of reporting there, how at a local paper, you can't get anything wrong, even middle names, without losing credibility, because people just know. And also, I learned how local newspapers drive the news for other outlets, drive the agenda for the public and for politicians, drive the community's understanding of itself. Public media serves that role more and more, from necessity as well as opportunity. Newspapers have faced terrible challenges from digital media upstarts, first Craigslist to Monster to Cars.com, and now Google and Facebook and Amazon. McClatchy is the latest company to declare bankruptcy. I applied to their papers three times. The Sacramento Bee said they were too big. I then applied to the Fresno Bee. They said they were too big. I applied to the Modesto Bee, and they just said no. So the call now is coming from inside the house in this horror show. Hedge funds and private equity investors have concluded the future looks so grim for newspapers they might as well maximize profits now. Hello, Gannett. Hello, Tribune. Hello, Media News. All under such siege. Those journalists who do great work at local papers typically do so despite their corporate leaders rather than because of them. This hour on point calls for action during a paralyzing moment for local journalism. Over the course of this show, we're going to talk about how and why things have gone awry, what that means for our journalism, what that means for our communities and our democracy. We're also going to talk about possible remedies, how perhaps to fill some of those gaps. To kick us off, here with me in studio in New York City is John Thornton. He's founder of the Texas Tribune and the co-founder in 2018 of the American Journalism Project, a venture philanthropy organization dedicated to preserving and strengthening local news journalism and newspapers. John Thornton. Welcome to On Point. Great to be here. John, you're a practical guy. You're a venture capitalist. Uh, What drew you into this realm? What made you decide, I'm going to get involved in this project to help preserve, to reinvigorate, to save American journalism? Uh, Temporary insanity, I suppose. Now 12 (laughs) years, uh, 12 years or so running. I, I, I got into this situation in the typical way that a venture person gets into it, which is I was trying to make a buck in my day job. And so as the managing partner of a venture firm, I was leading a a, a sort of strategy analysis, which was focused on the fact that we had done less media investing than most of what we considered our, our peer firms. And we thought it was a good idea to figure out whether that was purposely contrarian or whether we were just missing something. And so it didn't take us very long, and the young team that that worked for me in a uh, very short period of time concluded that neither the sort of startup newsy things that we were looking at nor some of the first distressed newspaper assets that were coming on the market. This was 2000, 2008, 2007, 2008. None of these looked like terrific ways to make money, and so off they went to their new thing, but I was left sort of with this sinking feeling that – we were looking at what felt like a market failure for coverage below of, of issues below the federal level. This was before Facebook and, and Google were prominent in the picture. It was before Twitter. But it was as mobile And also it was right before the global financial crisis. Well, there's that, that little detail. But, yeah. I mean, but I mean even just before that, you're realizing this isn't working. Just before. In, in fact, I filed in corporation papers – for the predecessor entity of the Tribune on September 15th of 08, which was the day that Lehman filed for bankruptcy. And so we, we were, we were smart ish, uh, unfortunately, and that, that I think we saw early that gravity was going to have its way with newspaper economics. We didn't see the crash coming. We certainly didn't see the platforms. We did, we didn't see the domination of, of Google and Facebook. Our analysis was, uh, assuming none of those things would have ever happened. And so obviously it got worse faster than we anticipated. So we'll talk a little bit about the Texas Tribune as well in a moment. But I want to talk about the American Journalism Project. 
you, you articulated some very uh, specific principles driving you guys, uh, you and your colleague Elizabeth Green. Uh, what makes it different? Mm. Well, I, I think the biggest principle that is driving uh, us is that we're, we, we said we, we base the tribute on three interlocking principles. One is our belief that democracy and journalism are interdependent, and that's particularly true at the, at the local level. The second is that the market has failed at the local level, and I'm sure we'll talk uh, a lot more about that. And a market failure just is a fancy way of saying that the market won't produce as much as we need as a society. You're saying that the market won't produce enough news or that in reality there's not enough money out there to subsidize the creation of news? Yeah. Well, the world is going to create enough news. That's a good distinction. Right. There, is, there is not enough money to do what we call news gathering. And, and that's really – the 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 scarce res there are two scarce resources we believe one are reporting resources and that's what's really going missing is is reporting when we talk about journalism the second is institutions that that we trust and that are economically sustainable and so what we're trying to do is reinvigorate reporting resources within institutions new institutions that people will trust and will be here for a long time I want to invite uh, listeners to join our conversation. Let me just start you off with this easy question, or maybe not so easy question. How do you get your local news, and how well does that coverage serve you? Follow us on the Twitters and the Facebook at On Point Radio. Uh, Twitter and Facebook not only being uh, uh, perhaps existential uh, threats to the workings of journalism, but something we like to fold in here as well. Um, Talk about what the American Journalism Project does, like how it is like – very grand to say we're going to do something uh, in local markets on a national scale. But what is it that you're actually doing that may help uh, both the institutions trying to cover uh, the news in some of these places and also the people they serve? Sure. Well, the the first, in some ways, the trickiest part is we're raising money. Uh, And so if you think about a venture capital firm that every two or three years goes out and raises a new fund to invest in promising new startups. It's not unlike what we're attempting to do here. We have raised $46 million in commitment in commitments from foundations and a couple uh, very generous and wealthy individuals. And the idea is that we'll take that uh, $46 million and invest it in 20 or so what we call civic news organizations, which are nonprofit, exclusively mission-driven organizations not unlike the Texas Tribune and Chalkbeat, which was uh, the CNO that, that my co-founder founded. And the idea is to, to do two things. One is to bring that news – begin to bring that news gathering spin back into the ecosystem. And the other is to multiply the number of examples that we feel like we can say are – and you've got to use air quotes, but air quotes – sustainable – so that we have models to point to going forward in multiplying yet again the number of those that uh, that are serving their communities. So these can be diverse models in terms of how they work, but all under the rubric of mission-driven and all under the rubric of not-for-profit. You got it. Uh, we've got a caller. Nancy uh, uh, has an example of this to this end. She's calling from Carlisle, Massachusetts. Nancy, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in. Yes, hi. Thanks for listening to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I called I called because um, I've been a writer for a long time for a newspaper called the Carlisle Mosquito, which is um, oper- owned and operated by uh, a local nonprofit. It circulates almost exclusively in the town of Carlisle, which is a little town outside of Boston. It's been going for 40 years, and it's been tremendously successful, and it's really supported by the community, we have a crew of about, I don't know, there's over 100 families that work over the course of a year in various aspects of the paper to get it together. And it's published and distributed to everybody in town once a week. And we cover all the local news, all the local boards, the school committee, the board of health, the trash collection problems. Hmm. And it, every, it's, it's been tremendously successful, not just because it's popular with the people in Carlisle, but also because it's local people covering the news, and mm-hmm. it really helps drive um, the debate about what's important and really influences voting in town at town meetings and in town elections. And I just wish more people understood that this is a way of really successfully and 
productively bringing the news to people without a lot of corporate hassle. And Nancy, before I let you go, uh, you said uh, you told our my producer colleague that the mosquito is mostly volunteer run and donation funded. Um, yeah, how well is we do take just... advertising. About half of the budget, I think, is supported by advertising, and we solicit donations from the community. And that's basically how it's been managed to stay afloat. You said Carlisle is outside Boston, obviously the Boston Globe, a very distinguished and large uh, regional newspaper. How well do other news outlets cover Carlisle in the absence of the mosquito? Not at all. Not mm-hmm. at all. We had there was a there, there was a, a major uh, difficulty about a regional vocational high school needing to to um, fund a new building about two or three years ago, and there are sixteen towns involved, including some of the larger towns outside of Carlisle, like Needham and um, and Concord and uh, mm-hmm. Lexington, and the the mosquito was the only paper that covered it in any detail at all. So we had people from other towns checking out. Uh, our articles online because really I was the only person who was going to and covering all those school committee meetings. All right, Nancy, thank you. Thank you for that. Nancy, a a reporter from the Mosquito uh, uh, calling from Carlisle, Massachusetts. Appreciate that. Uh, John Thornton, we got about a minute left before our first break. What do you hear when you hear what Nancy has to say? Well, I I hear my little heart going pitter-pat. I mean, that's just the kind of story that that makes my week. What, What Nancy is talking about is not just a newspaper and it's not just journalism. She's talking about the role of a sort of common fact set in holding together a community. And, and we very much believe that the, the hollowing out of local media has had a lot to do with the um, very well-documented declining sense of community around the country, particularly in small towns, particularly in economically disadvantaged small towns. So uh, it's just a great story to hear. John Thornton, stick around with us. Uh, he's the founder, co-founder of the American Journalism Project. We'd like you to join our conversation. How do you get your local news? How well does it serve you? We're discussing the future of local newspapers, a new philanthropic effort to help revive the industry of local news that has suffered so greatly in recent years. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.
This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflick. We're discussing the way forward for local newspapers, which have suffered greatly in recent years and yet still have been the horsepower that has driven the local news agendas. With me in here in studio in New York City, John Thornton. He's founder of the Texas Tribune and the co-founder of the American Journalism Project. And joining us, I believe, from New York City as well is Mia Parrish. She's a former president publisher of the Arizona Republic and also the Kansas City Star. Uh, she's currently a professor of media innovation and leadership at Arizona State University. Mia, welcome to On Point. Thank you for your interest, David. Glad to be here. Uh, so, Mia, uh, You've been a former publisher. You've been a champion of, of, uh, of journalism at the outlets you've been at. I've read about you over the years. You talked about uh, – we mentioned uh, two, two of the larger papers you led, the Kansas City Star, uh, uh, currently owned by McClatchy, and uh, the Arizona Republic is a major paper for Gannett, uh, two of the largest important regional newspaper owners in the country. You mentioned in passing uh, to Adam Waller, my producer colleague who worked with me on this hour, that – What's happened to local newspapers is a rolling catastrophe. Yes, I did say that. <laughs> when did the carnage begin? What, 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 to what do you attribute uh, that catastrophe? You know, it is, um, it's a constellation of disruption over many decades, and it will take a constellation of solutions, including what John's been talking about that um, I'm personally very excited about and um, but that isn't a, there isn't going to be a single thing. You know, there were many business disruptions in the model. You know, advertising is not sustainable. Digital advertising, you're seeing that break down. The new things that are happening are breaking down, and we're having assaults on all fronts. You know, credibility and um, apathy and despair and um, and there really has been an acceleration of it. I think is the thing that concerns me the most. You know, it's been going on a long time, and when each of those things, a Craigslist or a Facebook, didn't break us then, um, it, it didn't mean that we couldn't be broken. So that concerns me greatly. I want to play a clip for listeners uh, about the, the sort of the collapse of confidence as well. Uh, the noted billionaire investor Warren Buffett has over the years been one of the biggest investors, biggest optimists, biggest champions of the possibility and importance of sustaining local newspapers. He spoke in 2013 to CNBC in which he painted a bright picture for local newspapers compared to their big city brethren. The local community paper that really is indispensable to the people of the community or many of the people in the community and that has a sensible internet strategy, I think has a much better future than the, the, big, uh, the big metropolitan paper. Last month, Buffett's investment company, Berkshire Hathaway, agreed to sell 31 newspapers for $141 million, I believe, to Lee. Uh, Buffett's longtime business partner, Charlie Munger, said that daily newspapers are, quote, all going to die as technological advances cause revenues to dry up. How dire is it for uh, some of the bigger, important regional papers that have helped to find uh, news for their communities and their states? Uh, well, <laughs> let me let let me let me have first crack, and then I want John to, to yeah. walk in here. Uh, Eleven on a scale of one to ten. <laughs> Eleven on a scale of one to ten. Yeah. Why? It's it, it, well, you know, going back to Warren Buffett's comment, he has been sounding a clarion call about that since I was in college, and we haven't responded to that in any uh, thoughtful, cohesive. Um, way and then had all of these disruptions. You know, John's talked about so many of them. Um, you know, 40% of U.S. newspapers are now in the control of hedge funds and VC institutional investors. That um, That is not a mission-driven, you know, business that we are in. Um, it is incredibly dire. And John can agree with me on the 11 or not, but... Um, we're at a very critical point, in my opinion. And to spell this out for listeners, Mia, you know, you talk about uh, certain kinds of investors. There's Fortress, which is an investment group that essentially for the next couple of years has, has control of the large new Gannett, a combined company of two major things. Uh, there are the folks at Alden Global, which control what used to be called Media News. 
and you know, it has hundreds of papers across the country that they've really stripped down. And they've recently t- taken a controlling stake in Tribune Publishing, a noted regional publisher uh, for which I used to work at the Baltimore Sun uh, and uh, also owns papers in Chicago, Florida, Hartford and elsewhere. Uh, these are, are, are companies that – so you're talking about – when you think about Tribune, you think about Gannett, you think about uh, – you think about McClatchy, uh, which itself has just declared bankruptcy in order to shed pension payments, giving that over to a, a, a federal uh, agency that's a backstop and also eliminating debt but also wiping out the ownership of its founding family. It likely is going to be controlled by, by a, a venture capitalists as well. And it is yet to be seen whether the shedding of those debts mean that they can operate it with a sense of we can take a lower profit rate because it's going to be easier now, or whether they're going to try to strip it for parts as it seems at times some of the other investors have done in other other companies. Right. We've seen more than 2,000 newspapers die in the last several years, and they won't be the last. It's not over yet. Uh, John Thornton, what do you think about this? Uh, you hear from uh, – I've interviewed uh, uh, the head of Gannett. I've talked to other folks there and they say, listen, these companies were run perhaps by people who had news values paramount, but they were run in such a way that they weren't sustainable. We're trying to find the level at which these things can make a, a modest profit and we can go forward so they can actually operate and focus on the journalism rather than the business side. Their critics, including some of their employees, say these guys are just stripping out every dollar they can while they can, and they're going to throw us uh, overboard when we're no longer useful to them. You're a guy who's an, an investor as well as interested in journalism. What do you see happening? Well, what I see happening is what happens when money and good intentions meet. Money tends to went out. Um, there, are, I always say I'm not much of a New Testament scholar, but there are a few Google trying to serve God and mammon. There are a lot of references to how difficult that is. And I think that that has played out really over the last 50 years in the newspaper business since the very first newspapers became public companies and took on this imperative to be very, very profitable from investors who didn't have a stake in the communities in which they were located. And so the investors treat newspapers just like they would uh, an investment in a pickle factory or a, a shoe store. And sometimes you're growing those things. Sometimes you're, you're picking them apart depending on market conditions, market share, your cost structure. The, the problem, problem, big problem with the newspaper industry, well, there are two. One is there's just no capital available to grow it. The second is that the ownership structure is now almost completely divorced from any community concerns. So the the chance that somebody who owns my newspaper has anything at all to do with or knows anything at all about what's going on in my town is is pretty low. And the 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 probably insoluble problem is just the dependence on advertising, particularly in the U.S. over the last fifty years, has been higher than it has been in any other country. And as we all know, adver- the, the, the pure nature of advertising has gotten completely upended in the last 20 years as uh, targeting by the platforms has gotten tremendously more sophisticated. What um, John Wanamaker famously said in the 20s about wasting half of his advertising budget, he just didn't know which half. That phenomenon has largely gone away. Mm-hmm. And what we forget is the half that he was quote-unquote wasting was was the stuff that was funding things that people needed in their lives but didn't necessarily generate what we would call a lot of page views today. And so that's the, that's the civic news. That's the category of information that we need as citizens and what – is pretty well-received wisdom in economic science at this point is that that citizen information need is just not one that the, that the market has ever been equipped to uh, to meet, and it's been subsidized by the, the earnings of the other three information needs, which are as a consumer, as an owner of property, and as a member of uh, uh, an audience. Mia Parrish, before I let you go, uh, Gannett was uh, sold uh, to uh, what had used to be called Gatehouse uh, Media, uh, which was another newspaper company, in some ways a smaller newspaper company. Uh, 
And when it was, one of its corporate board members was Steve Call, the former Washington Post managing editor and uh, dean of uh, the Graduate School of Journalism uh, here in New York at Columbia University. Uh, Call said this was, you know, a chance to give Gannett better sounder footing and to really prosper and succeed. And I asked him on the record, were you confident in this path? And he said, nope, but it's the best one we got. Right. Uh, what faith do you have that Gannett, which itself was known as a fairly penny-pinching, uh, fairly streamlined, often you know resorting to layoffs and other reduction in in its ambitions, uh, how you know m- how many much resources somebody like you would have had to send reporters around the state of Arizona? Uh, mm-hmm. How much faith do you have that Gannett can endure in a meaningful way that serves its readers? I have, um, I am, I hope very much that that is the case. You know, it is, um, it's dire and it is so vital, but the business realities of it, it's, it's naive to think that the market will act as a compassionate entity and a force for public good. It doesn't work that way. And the structure of the deal and the structure of the debt puts tremendous pressure on an already very under pressure industry um, and situation. You know, it's just, there's such a very small pathway um, to make that happen. And I understand why they say that it's possible because it is the best option of very bad choices. And so, you know, you, you hope that that can be the case. Um, but just the facts of the deal, the facts of the matter and the, the economics of it make it extraordinarily difficult to see a path to success in that daunting words from Mia Parrish. She's former president and publisher of the Arizona Republic, Kansas City Star. Mia, thanks for making time for us today. Thanks for asking me. Uh, I'd like to take a call now from uh, Madison, Wisconsin. The call is from a ringer. Uh, Matt, uh, I understand you're a practicing uh, journalist. Uh, Thanks for listening and calling in today. Thanks for having me. My question is about uh, audience Newspapers, uh, local newspapers, have traditionally tried to provide that objective, centrist perspective on the news. They've tried to play it straight, provide the vegetable uh, reporting. And we're we're having an audience that is constantly being delivered sort of the dessert uh, option from both the right and the left now. Uh, you know, how, can, is, how much is that a factor in uh, you know, the difficulty local newspapers have in trying to hang on to audience when they're still cleaving to the center? And I believe, uh, Matt, if I'm not mistaken, Matt DeFore, you're the state politics editor for the Wisconsin State Journal. That's right, yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, Matt, and calling in. We appreciate your work. John Thornton, how do you address uh, Matt's uh, concern about the question of uh, people uh, gravitating towards the dessert part of the uh, of the buffet bar? Well, how long do you got? Um, the I'd start by saying that that the disappearance in, and Matt state coverage is a is a terrific example because that's one of the areas of news that, is, that has gotten tremendously hard hit uh, is its uh, capital and state bureau coverage. And so terrific for you that, that you're still uh, whacking at it because there's plenty of stuff in Wisconsin that um, you need to keep an eye out for, I'm sure. The, there are at least two pieces in my mind to your question. The, the, the first is that we believe that news enterprises such as newspapers, what we call civic news organizations, we need to rethink them in society as civic rather than commercial organizations. And so what that means is that they have an obligation to produce a certain quantum of information that we just need as as citizens to do our uh, to do our job, uh, Justice Brandeis called the job of, of publics, uh, uh, of private citizen, the most important public office. Increasingly, we just don't have the information to do our job. We need help. We need help from people like you. And so thing one is that uh, we need news institutions that see as their civic obligation to produce that kind of information regardless of the economics. This, the, the second piece is is harder, which is as you – as you have the hollowing out of uh, of local news and of the center, which we believe is is a real, really crucial uh, staging ground for for compromise, which is the most important muscle we think we have as a democracy. But as that gets hollowed out, people do tend to retreat to 
uh, I hate to use the term, but filter bubbles that that are 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 more uh, doctrinaire. They are more identified as as right or left, and they tend to conflate their um, views on national stuff. They tend to bring those into local politics and local issues where they don't really belong. So it's a it's a complicated question you're asking and not an easy one to solve. We've only got a couple of minutes left before our next break, but I wanted to touch on the Texas Tribune, which is an example of this. The Tribune created by my guest, John Thornton, in 2009 as a response to what he perceived as a decline in newspapers in that state. That same year, I, spoke, I met you, John. I think you were wearing flip-flops that day. Uh, and I spoke Hope to your so. CEO, Evan Smith, for NPR. Uh, Smith described the void in news coverage uh, that the Texas Tribune was filling. Mostly in baseball terms, we hit them where they ain't. We didn't go following their reporters down the same rabbit holes and do the same stories. Inevitably, in a year of a governor's race, we're all going to be in there swinging at it. But primarily the stuff that we've been doing on health care and on education, on immigration, was stuff that they were not doing. Now, you know, Texas has Houston Chronicle, Dallas Morning News. It's got decent-sized papers, San Antonio, El Paso, Fort Worth. Uh, there's a decent amount of journalism gets done in, in, in Texas. What was the problem you felt you were addressing? Well, when when I wrote down what I wanted the Tribune to do, it was very simple, which is help the people of Texas make better decisions in their civic lives. And what we felt was kind of the canary in the coal mine there was that the the number of state capital focused reporters had gone down precipitously over a 10-year period. I can't remember exactly what the math was. But but this is endemic of, of what's gone on all over the country. A majority of taxes are, uh, depending on how you do the numbers, uh, maybe a large majority are, are spent in state and local governments over about 4 million square miles of the country. The, the taxes that are levied and spent in D.C., with 75 square miles are watched by the same number of reporters they were 20 years ago. In the other three and a half, four million square miles of the country, that's, that number of reporters has gone down by anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters. And so that just gives you a sense. I don't care if you're left of uh, Bernie Sanders or if you actually are QAnon. It's not good uh, when you have a situation like that. You can join our conversation. Where do you get your local news and how well does it serve you? Let us know. We're discussing the future of local newspapers, a new philanthropic effort to help revive the industry of local news that has suffered so greatly in recent years. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Dave Folkenflick. We're discussing the role local newspapers play in defining community and sketching out a new philanthropic initiative that helps to, hopes to help revive and replace the financially foundering industry. With me is John Thornton. He's founder of the Texas Tribune and the co-founder of the New American Journalism Project. Joining us from Tallahassee is Mary Ellen Kloss. She's Miami Herald's uh, Tallahassee bureau chief, which uh, I think means she oversees coverage of state politics. Last September, she wrote an essay for Harvard's Neiman Reports examining the impact on local government and civic engagement uh, when local journalism is significantly curtailed. Mary Ellen, welcome to On Point. Good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, we're delighted that, that you're here. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, well, let's 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 talk about an example here, right? I've interviewed uh, your colleague uh, Julie Brown for uh, earlier stories in my role as NPR's media correspondent. Uh, tell us about the power and impact that a local or major 
regional newspaper can have below the national level, not the New York Times, not the Wall Street Journal, but some, the impact that a paper can have in investigating the importance of a locally based story? Well, you know, it, it all has to do with boots on the ground and, and just digging and getting information and asking questions. You know, we had written and there had been some coverage of the Epstein case um, when it first broke, but so, know, be, it, so, it, so be clear that Jeffrey Epstein, yeah, that the infamous right. and now now dead uh, uh, financier and and multiply accused predator, right? And um, so, when the initial reports came out about that, you know, there wasn't a lot of um, people forgot about it. Um, so when um, Trump announced that his labor secretary was going to be the former prosecutor who was. Um, in in Miami, who was involved in that case, she started Julie Brown, the investigative reporter, started digging into it and looking at what exactly happened. Um, and you know, when we first broke the story, when she started looking at some of the details and talked to the, talked to many of the victims, it didn't initially get that much attention until the national uh, news organizations started to realize that this labor secretary had a role in it. Things started to come together in that way. And I think once that, you know, if she hadn't been just asking questions and digging into that, there just might not have been the repercussions. Um, and there are stories like this in every community um, where something, you know, people just forget that someone has made a decision, you know, the accountability um, hasn't been the focus hasn't been on on uh, that decision for a while and until it's amplified um there isn't the same kind of impact we've we've been covering something in Tallahassee for recently um where we had a uh, a report out in 2018 about a domestic violence shelter uh, coalition that had um we were looking at kind of just looking at the public record and found that they're they were paying their CEO seven hundred and sixty one thousand dollars. You know that was a lot of money for a, for that kind of an agency. And the story, you know, if we'd written that story in Tallahassee twenty years ago when we had forty news organizations covering, it was super competitive. Everybody would have picked up on that, and it would have been amplified, and it would have been competitive. And the let and the decision makers, the governor and the legislature might have paid attention. But when we wrote it in 2018, it didn't get any amplification. The legislature ignored it. They rubber stamped the budget of this agency again, and, and it went on. Well, we picked up the story again last year, and finally the House Speaker paid attention. He ordered a, a investigation, and they've finally pulled some documents, and it was far worse than we ever realized. When they started investigating and they turned over the documents to us, we found that they were paying the CEO $7.5 million over three years, and there was no oversight. Hmm. But there used to be a time where those stories would get attention and amplification. But as John was saying, the hollowing out of the news business is such that some of it's just take, accountability reporting has an impact. It's just taking a lot longer. I want to play uh, a, a clip for you and for listeners from the Emmy Award-winning screenwriter David Simon. Uh, he's noted for uh, The Deuce on HBO for The Wire, which dealt with journalism. Son uh, has one uh, project coming out based on Philip Roth's book, The Plot Against America. He worked – and I knew him uh, when he worked for the Baltimore Sun City Desk for a dozen years beginning in 1983. In 2009, he testified before the Senate at a hearing on the future of journalism. There's no glory in that kind of journalism, but that is the bedrock of what keeps, you know, got the next 10 or 15 years in this country are going to be a halcyon era for state and local political corruption. It is going to be one of the great times to be a corrupt politician. Right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I really envy them. Uh, Mary Ellen, you have lived this. You have studied this a dozen years later, uh, I should say, 11 years later. Was David Simon right? You know, it's amazing. He's absolutely right. Um, you know, I've had political consultants to actually tell me that they don't, they tell, they advise their, their clients not to really worry about filling out their financial disclosure forms because no one's going to ever check. 
there are so few of us left to actually dig into these details. They just wait us out. Um, I have absolutely let's, let's, seen Let's pin an, that for a moment, though. Mary Ellen, yeah. let's put a pin in that for a moment. What you're saying is that those requirements put on people inside government and those people seeking to do business with government, the kinds of disclosures that allow people like you, whether researchers or reporters, to say, hey, there's a problem here or there's something I'm going to flag for you guys and you voters, you make of it what you will, lawmakers and regulators, you make of it what you will. Those kinds of – that kind of information isn't being surfaced because there's no consequence. Is that right? Right. I mean because – you know, un- unless you have the volunteer reporters like in Massachusetts, where somebody is actually spending the time to look for that, but you also have to get delivered in a, pl- in a way where there's credibility, and that's what independent newspapers have been: is a credible place to where you know that, you know, it's it's down the middle, and the coverage is designed to be fair, um, and and as as you said at the top of the show. If you get someone's middle name wrong, you hear from somebody. You run into mm-hmm. them at the grocery store, and they're not happy. Um, so there, there is absolutely when you do, when you don't have reporters actually looking at this, or, or just even asking questions, um, people get away with more. And I have, I have, I believe that it's starting to change how government behaves. You wrote, uh, less local news means less democracy. You found in Kentucky the then-governor at the time of your study, uh, Matt Bevan, essentially ignored the media, uh, that, that he found that he didn't need to have uh, uh, real engagement with reporters. And when he did, it was pretty antagonistic. And you found that in your own state with uh, your now Senator Rick Scott. That's right. And, you know, this is a complicated issue. It's not just the disappearance of of reporters. It's also the evolution of social media. So our current governor, Ron DeSantis, um, you know, makes an effort to do every availability on Facebook Live. But he doesn't – he he went for two and a half months without a media availability. um, And this week he just broke broke the the, – the dearth of it, but he and, and actually met with reporters briefly. But you know, if they can go directly to people through social media, they can t- control their message, um, and they think they're being accessible. But we don't have the give and take anymore. Uh, before I let you go, uh, I wanted to ask you. Mia Parrish has written. She we had her on earlier the show. She's written about what she feels were lost opportunities for collaboration, ways in which uh, local news organizations, regional news organizations, could band together, you know, leverage their resources. Uh, are you seeing that in Florida to the extent that it's happening? And I think there have been some collaborations down there. Is it helping, or is it just sort of like uh, waving a handkerchief in a hurricane? <laughs> Well, I think it's an inevitable, and definitely we are seeing collaborations. Um, in fact, um, when the recession hit, uh, it was 2008, and our bureau at the Miami Herald was going to have to lose two reporters, and um, our, our competitor, our biggest competitor was the Tampa Bay Times. We said, you know what, instead of each of us cutting bureaus, let's merge. And so for the last 12 years, we have merged our bureau. We, sh- we divide the beats. Everything in each paper runs in each paper. Um, and it's been an effective and helpful collaboration. And we're seeing that in, in other places. But the sad thing is we, you know, <laughs> as you mentioned, McClatchy has declared bankruptcy. I am the last bureau. Um, I'm hoping that they continue to, to invest and, and think that this is a worthy cause. But I don't know what the future holds. It's it's very uncertain. Uh, tough to hear, but important to hear from Mary Ellen Kloss. She's Miami Herald's Tallahassee Bureau Chief. Thanks for taking some time this working day to join us. Thank you. I'd like to take a call now from Detroit, Michigan. I'm still here in studio with John Thornton, the co-founder of the American Journalism Project. But Daryl has called in from Detroit. Daryl, thanks for listening. Thanks for waiting to share your thoughts. Hi. Um, I have a quick comment. You know, I feel um, a kind of a mournful loss for uh, African-American newspapers, coast to coast, because there's so much that we used to get out of those, and, and they did so much good in terms of social justice issues and all kinds of, um, you know, support for causes. Like, 
I heard once, uh, I'm just flipping through the channels on television once, and I heard Bob Costas, I believe, say something like, um, uh, Colin may not be the very best person or most glib or articulate person to carry this message, but, but it's a valid and valuable message that needs to be heard. And now, and now we've got sporting events that will run whole long commercials talking about justice issues. And he's forgotten in the sauce, but uh, a black newspaper could have perhaps put him back in some kind of employment, could have goaded uh, the league into, into just like he did, into running commercials about justice, getting him back on the field. It, mm-hmm. it, it's Colin a shame Kaepernick, sure. that the voice, the voice is, is lost, uh, essentially, unless a Bob Costas or someone like him with that kind of high profile says something on air because the people that used to spread that message and, and, and pass it from town to town are, are no longer available to, to carry that mantle. Thank you so much for sharing that, Daryl. We appreciate it. I want to read to John Thornton a couple of comments from, from uh, listeners online. Uh, w- one of them said one problem for the small local papers that they were owned by larger paper newspaper company and they ended up being sort of uniformly liberal. Uh, another, uh, B. Sean Clark writes on our website, uh, you guys at On Point just did a show on the demise of in- independent bookstores when in fact rumors of their death were highly exaggerated. Same perhaps with local papers. Why did indie bookstores survive and then thrive? Community, we yearn for a sense of community that we have lost. Mm-hmm. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the Texas Tribune uh, and about what you did there. Uh, one of the things that you – did was say, we're going to come up with other revenue models here. Uh, and it seems to me that, that you see that DNA in the American Journalism Project where you say, where you say we're going to be not-for-profit, we're going to be mission-driven, but also – and this may seem like, hey, it's an economic question, but I think it defines things. We're not going to have a paywall. That's right. Now, you know, uh, it was always – Something I wrestled with in my head as the internet came online, people talked about this at the Baltimore Sun and our caller, caller Daryl mentioned African-American newspapers. The Afro-American in Baltimore was a real resource for that city and region for a long time. But uh, as we think about newspapers staying alive, a lot of papers that have thrived have done so figuring out a way to convey to readers that what they offer is something of value and that they can give money back. And mm-hmm. my sense is there are some not-for-profits that have – you know, ask for subscriptions or oh, we'll ask take for your money. Absolutely. We'll take your money as well. Some of them will require them after a few hits. Right. Tell me why that's an integral part of that and why you feel that organizations that do paywalls are following a bad model. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they're necessarily a bad model. They don't solve for what, what we're trying to solve for. And maybe, maybe I should, should back up <clears throat> part of the frustration for us over the last decade or so is the focus on newspapers has been a lot about saving newspapers. It's not been about doing for our democracy what we think needs to be done for our democracy, which is to keep citizens better informed than than they are. The, the problem with paywalls is if you take the economics out of it for a second, they guarantee that fewer and fewer people are going to have access to, to information. And, and I think it was Jefferson who said that, that – you, you needed a country of newspapers and the, the, the part of the quote that gets left out is and everybody needs to have free and equal access to them. And so what what we believe from a societal problem is that there is a quantum of information that every citizen should have access to do whether he or she is willing or able to pay or not. Whether he or she reads that stuff every day is of less consequence we think to the society, but its availability is absolutely critical to the way we've run uh, our democracy for a long time. And so we're not opposed to paywalls, but we are opposed to paywalls that sit in front of these critical information needs that we think ought to be freely available to everybody. Put put your um, put your movie reviews and your sports behind a paywall, and we got no problem with that. All right. We got about 30, 45 seconds left. I know that you're funding one of our listeners hails VT Digger in Vermont, uh, the Connecticut Mirror. I know some folks there, terrific uh, journalists involved in that. Uh, $46 million on this venture, seed money, but a lot of it, a lot is riding on your shoulders. How much obligation you feel to get this right? Oh, we feel a lot of obligation, but we also feel a tremendous amount of 
hope and optimism. We're we're seeing um, startup efforts in places big and small, and and we're really trying to chase the kind of Hall of Fame version of this. The dream version of this is. I'm 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 fed up. I want to start a paper in Wichita, Kansas, or a news organization in Wichita, Kansas. And there's a playbook and some money for me to go do that, and uh, it becomes sort of a thing. And I think it's it's starting to become that. We'll be watching. We'll be interested, and we'll be awaiting it. John Thornton, founder of the Texas Tribune, co-founder of the American Journalism Project. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you. You can continue the conversation. Get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter's and Facebook, On Point Radio. We're produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Daumai, Lena Amata, Brittany Knotts, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, Hillary McQuilkin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller, with help from Liam Knox, Carolyn Love, and Bradley Noble. Me? I'm David Folkenflick. You've been listening to On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balance scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts, and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.